rough week this week. My my beloved excursion broke down, uh, and it broke down here in the parking lot. So uh, I managed to get it running and get it back home again, but uh, uh, broke down in the parking lot. So I'm out there one morning, working on it underneath it, crawling around on the ground, 29 degrees out, having a great time. And of course, I'm thinking, as we all think when these things happen, what a pain. Why is, why is this happening? I don't want this to be happening. And of course, the question on my mind is, is it, is it bad or, or is it worse? Because machines do not just get better, right? We do not expect systems on their own to spontaneously improve. If anything, the more complicated the system, the more likely it is that chaos will reign, that something will happen, and it will deteriorate from there. This is the world in which we live, a world in which systems break down. And if there is no outside, if there's no direction coming from outside of that system, if there's no improvement, if there's no maintenance, if there's no active engagement, the system's functions will get worse and worse. That's the world. So when we look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is how he opens it in Matthew 4. From that time on, Jesus began to preach Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, this statement actually addresses two different missional priorities. Remember, our missional priorities are things that Jesus said were the reasons for his ministry, the reasons why he came. And there are two of those missional priorities wrapped up in this opening statement of Jesus' ministry. Mission priority number four is that we will Declare the good news. So Jesus says in, in, in Luke 4 that he must declare the good news of the kingdom of God. It is, in fact, why he was sent. And mission priority number five is to call sinners to repentance. For instance, in Mark 2 where Jesus says, I, I, I've not come to call the righteous, I've come to call sinners. I've not come to, to, to call on the healthy but the sick. These two priorities are very closely related, but they're also distinct in some important ways. And we're going to try to kind of tease that out this morning. Because we kind of equate them a bit. When we talk about, as Christians, sharing the gospel, we're often actually referring to this whole business of sin and repentance which is a closely related theme, but it is not the same theme. In fact, a common misconception treats sin as an exclusively religious problem and the gospel as somehow limited to that problem. So sin is this religious term that we use for a religious state of being, and we need a religious solution to the problem of sin. In fact, some of the most familiar presentations of the gospel focus on my personal sin and my personal redemption. And you've probably seen some of these. You've seen the, 
graphic of this chasm between us and God, and, and uh, our sin has separated us from God, and the sacrifice of Jesus, his cross specifically, is the bridge over this chasm that allows us to reconnect with God. And that's all true, but in this presentation, the opportunity to repent and the fact that Jesus has made this sacrifice so that we can repent is itself sort of presented as if that were the gospel, that, that were the good news in this story. But the gospel in the ministry of Jesus is declared a full three years before that sacrifice even takes place. And it is specifically referred to as a gospel of the kingdom of God. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because the kingdom is God's way of dealing with, of treating the entire whole problem of sin. Not just our piece of it, but all of the damage that sin has done. Our sin is certainly a part of that problem, but sin has a far more pervasive effect than sometimes we allow ourselves to recognize. It has created all sorts of brokenness, all manner of brokenness, and we may not recognize it because it is the tendency of humanity to normalize familiar brokenness. So whatever is broken in our lives that has always been broken in our lives, we have a tendency to treat that as normal and not even attempt to deal with it. We get used to things being defective, and we may in fact have no alternative experience to compare that thing to. So, as I think about a lot this time of year, uh, the house that I grew up in did not have central heating. It was in California on the coast, so it wasn't as big a deal as it would be here, but it didn't have central heating. Instead, what it had is those electronic floor registers in every room, only we were never allowed to turn those on, right? So my family did not have the money to be paying the electric bill that we, that we would get after we had the, but I didn't know this. I didn't understand. I didn't even know what that thing was. It was just this metal thing on the floor in my room, which we were not supposed to touch and never allowed to use. So we got used to this. We grew accustomed to it. It was normal. We had a fireplace in the living room, and you got cold, and then you went and you stood in front of the fireplace. You want your room to be warmer? There's always July. That, that was the solution. There was, there was nothing else for us to think about. Nothing, and, and I think about this a lot right now because my house is kind of cold and dry. Right? But at the time, I, I didn't know any different. We function this way a lot in the world. There is all kinds of brokenness around us, all kinds of deficit, all kinds of not quite up to par and we barely notice it. We barely notice it. We don't attempt to fix it. We don't even complain about it. It's just normal. And then, after it's been normal long enough, often it becomes, in our definition, good. 
This is, we assume, the way things are meant to be. This brokenness, then, actually becomes a source of pride for us, a source of identity, uh, an expression of, of liberty, an expression of personality. And so we don't recognize and we don't think about the damage that sin has done. We don't think about the damage that sin is doing until that sin destroys something. And we can observe the impact of sin in the scattered damage that it leaves behind, but even then, it's so much easier to recognize that scattered damage in the lives of others than it is in our own lives. In our own life, these, these are just normal things. We say nobody's perfect. What, what we mean is that we have no aspiration to be any better than that. We expect things to be this broken. Jesus begins his kingdom ministry with good news for broken people. For the poor, for the imprisoned, for the oppressed. Jesus says I, there's this righteous kingdom coming. And it operates by a completely different standard. So the humble are going to be lifted. The poor and the brokenhearted, the, those who mourn will receive comfort. Everything will be reversed. Everything that is broken about this world that you live in right now will be different in this kingdom. And in fact, the more you understand just how broken everything is, the less power you have over your circumstances, the, the, the more disenfranchised you are by the evil, the sin, the brokenness of the world, in a, a sense, the better off you are because you're going to be the first ones to recognize how brilliant this new kingdom is. Then he turns around and he says, by the way, if you want to enter this kingdom, you need to be more righteous than the most righteous people you presently know. Well, wait a minute, how, how is that good news? They're the most righteous people. We, we see these people, they see them praying all the time. We see them, they, 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 they're devoted to you, they live for you, and we need to be more righteous than they are. Now, we said that Jesus, Jesus, one of Jesus' mission strategies is to raise expectations, but he just raised expectations from basic, simple obedience of the law to absolute moral righteousness. How is this good news? We were already failing at keeping the law. Did we really need the standard to be upped? We say, well, it's all about redemption. You know, the good news is that even as he's making this statement, he's offering us redemption. Well, that's true enough, but we're already sinners. How does it help us to dig our hole any deeper? Jesus need me to know just how bad of a sinner I am before he can forgive me? I think we miss something in this passage. We miss the fact that this entire passage, this entire Sermon on the Mount, is really Jesus describing his kingdom. And so an appeal to righteousness in this sense is not a call to deeper guilt, but it is a reference point for wholeness. Jesus describes the perfection of kingdom, the perfection 
of righteousness. Now, if we hold ourselves up to a standard of God's perfect righteousness, does that make us look more sinful? Yes. Does it make our sin look more shameful? Yes. Is that the point? Probably not. Because what it also does is it gives us a glimpse of what life is supposed to be. How the world is supposed to work. We know how the world works. We're familiar with its brokenness. We're less familiar with how it's supposed to work. When I built my house in Colorado, based on my experience as a child and my experience of various heating systems over the years in various rentals that we owned, I decided to put hydronic floor heat in my house. Little tubes of water, hot water running through all the floors. It is glorious. There's this nice, even heat all the time. Everywhere you go, just comfortable. The floors are never cold. When you come out in the morning, your feet don't get cold. Even the tile floors in the bathroom on a winter's morning. You go into the bathroom, tile floors in the bathroom feel like they've been out on the patio being heated by the sun. It's fantastic. And the best part was, I put floor heat in my garage. Don't think I wasn't thinking about that this week. I used to be able to pull my vehicles in in the middle of winter, turn the floors on, and wait for all the snow and ice to drop off of the vehicle and evaporate. It was nice. Now the point of all of this is that from that time forward, that particular heating system is the standard by which I judge all other heating systems, and none of them are up to par. That was the best. Well, understand this about this kingdom that Jesus is bringing. He is describing something that is so perfect, so righteous, it is so beyond anything we have experience with, that once we begin to comprehend it, anything less will be inadequate. That's what Jesus is doing here as he describes this perfect righteousness. It's not so that you can feel more guilty. It's so that you can understand just how perfect the world was before sin broke it. God created a perfect and righteous world. God created us in his perfect image. And the challenge for us is that the memory of this perfection is lost to us. We are not seeking to repair the damage because in our experience, the damage is normal. Everything that's broken, that the world venerates, we tend to want to venerate along with them. We want to play by their rules because we no longer recognize it as broken. We just recognize it as the way things work. A huge part of understanding what the gospel is, what the good news is, is understanding what the hope of this re restoration is. Where is it that Jesus is going to take us in this new perfected creation? We're not seeking to repair the damage. 
because in our experience, the damage is normal. We need to learn to appreciate how not normal the damage is. If we really appreciate the gospel, we need to have a much better understanding of sin. I do crossword puzzles. Do do a crossword puzzle pretty much every day. And uh, sin is a great crossword puzzle answer. It comes up a lot because it's a nice three-letter word and it fits in with a lot of those. The clue for sin is almost always common sermon topic. Which I think is kind of funny because in reality, I don't hear sermons about sin all that much anymore. We, we don't like talking about sin. And when we talk about sin, we tend to talk about it in kind of a shallow way. And so the world that thinks about sin thinks of it as it's kind of this religious concept. It's maybe even a bit archaic. And then our notion of sin is sometimes, in its worst form, sort of this arbitrary list of no-no rules that God has for us. Just stuff he doesn't like. But the Bible describes sin quite differently. Genesis chapter 4, we're talking about uh, the almost sin of killing your brother. Genesis 4, starting with verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So sin is introduced in Genesis as this externalized enemy force. It's not your spiritual boo-boos. It is this malicious, powerful presence that desires to have control of your life, control of your heart, control of your actions. Sin is a deviation from an exclusively righteous pathway. In other words, you know, we, we, we all have a lot of choices in life. You go out to the lobby after service, there'll be a choice of which refreshment, which Danish. They're all equally sinful. Doesn't, doesn't matter what you choose. Right? Doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It's neutral. Doesn't have any impact on your spiritual well-being, your emotional health. Might have an impact on your waistline. Look, we make decisions every day that don't matter. There are some decisions that matter. There are some decisions that take us off of this pathway of God that leads to righteousness and order. There are some decisions that, that, that veer. Those are the decisions that we're talking about when we talk about sin. We're talking about leaving the order, leaving the truth, leaving the goodness of God. Because righteousness really means good. It's not just a religious standard. Righteousness is what a good world and a good man, a good woman looks like. So if you want a good life, you want a righteous life. You want to be a good person, you want to be a righteous person. On a good family, a good, good home, a good job, all, all of it is about following this path. 
you deviate from this path, it's an exclusive path. There's only one way to be righteous. There's a lot of ways to be everything else, but there's only one way to be fully righteous, and that is to follow after the righteousness of God. Aside from the devastating spiritual consequences, sin just breaks life. It does damage. Sin acts like a systemic threat, like a virus or an invasive species. So, so, so God says uh, to Cain, he said that sin desires to have you. It seeks to dominate whatever space it occupies. And even if you can't see it at work, if you can't see why this is a problem, why God has called this particular thing out as sinful, it's still doing its damage. Like a virus in the body, you don't have to see it in order to experience its effects. Like an invasive species, sin overwhelms and displaces whatever is natural in that habitat until it, until it has achieved its goal of dominating and destroying everything. Like a virus, the longer we're exposed to it, the more it, pervasive it is in our body, the more damage it's capable of doing. And it never stays contained. The virus spreads. Whoever we're around is probably going to pick up a little bit of what we got. And what is this sin doing in our life? Well, we all know that sin separates us from God. But it's not because God doesn't like sin for some arbitrary reason. It's because sin represents a willful departure from the will and the order and the righteousness and the goodness of God. In other words, it puts separation between us and God because we're choosing separation between us and God. Not that God isn't faithful, it's that we break faith with God. Sin replaces innocence with ignorance. When Adam and Eve commit the first sin, they're basically naive. They're basically innocent. After they commit that sin, they have an awareness of good and evil. They just continue to do evil anyway. This is, what's, this is the destructive power of sin. It takes us from being unaware of the consequences, unaware of the evil of sin, until we are aware and we choose it anyway. Romans 1, Paul says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God or gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Sin captivates the sinner. It intrigues us. It romances us, even. But in the end, the goal of sin is to imprison us. Not to give us all the things that we want, all the things that will make us content, but, but to control us. James 1, James says, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Sin corrupts our human relationships. It creeps in between us with greed and envy and selfishness and lust and pride. 
It damages everything in its wake. And even those that we love the most are, in a way, the least protected from our sinfulness. Sin untethers culture from creation. James 4 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Sin obscures the image of God within us. The image of God, which is the basis for our inherent value as human beings. You are valuable because you're created in God's image. No matter what else you've done, no matter what else has happened in your life, the inherent value in your life is that God created you in his image. And what sin does is it, 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 it doesn't remove that, but it obscures it. It covers it up with other garbage. We are breaking the created order of God. We are taking everything good and holy, and we're making it base and broken and impure. Paul goes on in Romans 1. He says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but they also approve of those who practice them. See, sin distorts the fundamental realities of God's creation. And we find ourselves not only accepting the brokenness of sin, but celebrating the brokenness of sin. And the culture deeply imbibes of sin and then wonders why life is messed up. As if there's no connection between the two. As if there's no consequences for the choices that we make. And sin, of course, ends in death. The interesting thing about sin ending in death is we've kind of repackaged even this as if it were a good thing. I was watching a a, a program here last week, a sci-fi program that I like, and it featured this uh, immortal, this immortal being. And in the over the course of the program, this immortal being finds himself envying the humans their death. Why? Because he says, it is only your death that brings meaning to your life. Oh, that's so deeply philosophical. Isn't that beautiful? That's a lot of nonsense is what that is. Death does not bring meaning to life. Death is just the opposite. Death undermines meaning in life. If there is no hope of life, death makes everything meaningless. That's the way that works. We have taken the brokenness of the world and we've lived with it so long that we recharacterize it as good and righteous, and it is anything but. Sin fills the world with a deep 
and abiding injustice. And this is where the illusion of personal sin really begins to break down. We like to think that my sin doesn't affect you. And particularly my secret sin. Eh, no, that doesn't affect anybody. But it's a lie. Our sin is a virus and it gets into everything. The world is evil. The world is unjust. The world is violent. It is stupid. It is immoral. And our personal sin is not inconsequential to this. Our personal sin is our participation in this. Personal sin is actually our cooperation with our own self-destruction and with the collapse of creation. Sin is not just a religious problem. It's not an arbitrary list of no-no rules established by the great cosmic killjoy. It is a malignant force bent on breaking you, bent on breaking life, bent on breaking the creation, its order and its perfection. And we have helped it. This is the great irony of our human existence. We have helped sin do its job. We say to sin, you, you want to beat me? Here, here's the whip. You, you want to imprison me? Here, here's the keys. You want to burn down my home, my family, my church, my society? Let me give you the matches. We don't know the broken from the whole because so much of the time we don't have any experience of the whole. All of our experience is with the brokenness. And yet, we go through life trying to make something whole out of all these broken pieces. If you have been beat down by life and by sin, Enough to know that there must be something better than this. And according to Jesus, you are blessed. You are the happiest of the bunch. Because the deliverance that you're looking for, the better life, is coming. The good news is the arrival of a king and a kingdom that break the dominion of sin. Sin is this invasive species. It's dominating our lives. It's dominating our habitat. habitat. It's leaving us no quarter for our existence. And all the while, we think we can get out there with the pruners and we can cut it back. We can manage it. We can keep it at bay. We can live in this brokenness and do it unscathed. And it doesn't work. And the battle never ends. And here is where Christ's sacrifice and redemption become the bookends of the gospel. Romans 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. This kingdom counterculture presents us with an opportunity to be restored to God and freed from our familiar brokenness. 
It is not a contrived religious problem with a contrived religious solution. It is about deeply real problems, spiritual, relational, emotional, and physical. We are broken by sin. Our world is broken by sin. The path and the order and the creation of God have been compromised by sin. And yet kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, even in the simple, imperfect expression, the imperfect form that we know it in this room together this morning, the kingdom of God is the opportunity to live by a different standard, to live under the reign of a different king. And this is the gospel. The gospel is that the king is and the king has entered into our world. Perfection such as we have never known and yet somehow still forgotten is in this kingdom. Return to Ephesians 4. Kind of a long passage, but it's worth it. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The world around us has dismissed salvation as an exclusively religious solution to an exclusively religious problem. In other words, they imagine that we as the church have created this dilemma only so that we can offer to solve it for you. This is such a small view, such a small view of salvation. Repentance is the act of changing course from a pathway of compounding brokenness to a pathway of compounding godliness. That the longer we choose the other path, the longer we choose sin, the more damage it does. It keeps us going down that path until it destroys something. Repentance means a change of direction. It means, it, it means that we choose something different, that we get on a different path, that we go a different way. And that way is the way of Christ. It is the way of kingdom. It is the way of righteousness. And so if we are truly following it, we are compounding our godliness. 
And the closer we get to that righteousness, the less damage we're doing to ourselves and others. Repentance isn't the gospel itself. Repentance is our response to the gospel. It is the only sane response to the gospel. The only thing that really works. It is the beginning of a journey of redemption and healing and restoration. We choose a different path. We learn, we recognize that all the things that the world has sold us as being whole, all the world has sold us as being worthwhile, being good, is a lie. Because goodness and righteousness are the same thing. And there is only one source for that. It is in God. Only God is good. His way is the way to everyone. This is the gospel. That it exists. That the kingdom is. That the king has come. Repentance Repentance is our opportunity to join.